If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, that's page 944 of your pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that home as our gift to you. In just a few weeks, on May 12th, Lord willing, Jess and I will celebrate 10 years of marriage. I know, I know. They, they said it couldn't be done. Nobody said that. Not to our faces, at least. We plan to get away. We'll go on a trip. We will uh, rejoice in 10 years of marriage. We will reflect on the last 10 years, God's grace at work in us and through us. And we will, uh, in a sense, renew our covenant commitment with one another, not content with just 10 years. We want all the more that the Lord would give us. Our covenant commitment, it's captured in the wedding vows. Now, Jess and I wrote our own vows, which I would not recommend. (laughs) It's it's hard to write about something you know next to little about. (laughs) Ooh, throwing myself under the bus. Traditional wedding vows, in the West at least, they come from the Book of Common Prayer, written by Thomas Cramner in 1544. They're old, they're tested, they capture this comprehensive commitment that we're seeking to make with one another in marriage. Love in the context of marriage means for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, right? The one thing splitting us apart being death. Now, after the vows comes the exchanging of the rings. They represent an unbroken bond and pleasure we're making to one another. The original edition of the Book of Common Prayer reads this way. With this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship, and with all of my worldly goods I thee endow, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Now, more modern translations, they've dropped the language of worship, okay, with my body I thee worship, and rightly so, it's confusing. Properly speaking, all of our worship is reserved for God. The worship of anything else of a creature would be idolatry. Now, Cranmer obviously recognizes this. He's talking about worship in a more general sense. More generally speaking, to worship something is to acknowledge something's value. It's to ascribe worth to it. Okay, we get the word worship, the English word from two words, worth-ship. We're talking about the worth of something when we worship it. The vows are saying that you are worthy and I'm willing to pay with my whole body. I'm willing to give myself to you and to no other man or woman. My allegiance belongs to you for richer or poor in sickness and in health. I give myself to you and I withhold nothing. My body and soul, my heart and my mind, they belong to you alone. No doubt the height of this worthship, this giving of self, the receiving of satisfaction, it happens in the physical union. With this body I thee worship, you are worthy of all of me, and all of me to thee I give. Now Cranmer, of course, he's using the language of worship. He's talking about something that's only analogous of our worship to God. He intends it to be rightly ordered, Meaning, the commitment we make in marriage, it's done in view of and subordinate to the commitment we've made to God. The vow, in fact, as we saw, it's taken in the name of the triune God. 
When we pursue anything, right, be it marriage or promotion or home or hobby, we are declaring its worth. We're saying you're worthy of my time, of my attention, of my efforts, of my affection. The pursuit of any good ought to be done as a means of and in view of the pursuit of God. Okay, all of our desires ought to be ordered. That means we understand that this is a good gift from God. We pursue them as God prescribes. Our desires for them never rise to our desire for God. That would be worship with a capital W. When we pursue something created as an end in itself, we're saying that it is supremely worthy and satisfying, more than God. Right, our desires have become disordered. We are worshiping the creature, not the creator, the gift, and not God himself. This is maybe especially tempting in marriage because we are relational creatures. We are created for union. Now, why I say all this, what I want us to understand about the text, this beautiful, classic text of Jesus interacting with this woman at the well. Okay, the last eight verses Jesus talks about worship. I want us to see that the entire text is about worship. The woman has been married five times. She's now living with a man who's not her husband. She has over and over again said, with this body I thee worship. Only she offered others what was only to be given to God. She looked to them for supreme satisfaction. Time and again, she was left more empty, more shameful, more guilty. Less satisfied. And to her and to all of us, Jesus offers two things life, and the worship of God. And as we'll see, the offer to worship God rightly is the offer of life. It's to be restored and renewed. To worship God in holiness is to be made whole. It is to finally find, in a sense, what our souls have been looking for and longing for all along. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word, where we will see that Jesus is after our worship. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 26. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where are you going to get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. 
Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go and call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Amen. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning, Jesus restores our worship of God. And in doing so, restores us. Jesus restores our worship of God, and in doing so, restores us. I'll say it one more time, it's a little longer. Jesus restores our worship of God, and in doing so, restores us. So we'll consider the text today under three headings, thinking about worship. We'll see first disordered worship. We'll see restored worship, and then we'll see transformed worship. Disordered worship, restored worship, and transformed worship. First, disordered worship. And this woman is going to give us a picture of disordered, of misdirected, of corrupted worship, of idolatry. It represents all of us prior to Christ and us to a degree still insofar as we seek to find life outside of God. Starting in verse 1, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. Now this connects our text with what we previously saw. There had been a dispute between uh, John's disciples and a Jew about whose baptism was the best. There was John's kind of original baptism, there's Jesus who's come along, which is new, and then there's water purification rites. Um, of the Jews. John explains that Christ is the bridegroom. John is but the best man. He readily fades into the background so that Jesus Christ would increase. So John understood it. His disciples understood it. Now the Pharisees, everyone understands Jesus's ministry is booming. He's taken the center stage. Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making more disciples and baptizing. Jesus I think no doubt knows what they will do to him given the chance. He knows that his hour has not yet come, and so he goes back to, ba- to Galilee. This is where he first found Philip and Nathaniel. This is where he first performed a sign at the wedding in Cana. And it's probably a two to three day journey from the Jerusalem area to Galilee. Verse four, he had to travel through Samaria. We don't really get it. 
It's like, dun, dun, dun. He had to travel through Samaria. It doesn't seem like a big deal to us. It was a big deal to them. Okay, you have to understand Israel's history, their context, to understand why this interaction is so unusual and why it's then so significant. So thinking back to Israel's history, shortly after King Solomon, so this is David's son, after King Solomon died, the nation of Israel was split in half. The northern nation was called Israel, the southern Judah. A couple of hundred years later, in fulfillment of covenant curses, and you can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 17, the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. The king of Assyria carried away, sent the people into exile, and then he repopulated the land with foreigners, um, people from his empire. The Lord, the text says, removed the people from the land and out of his presence because of their persistent sin. Sin, sin, sin since the time of Jeroboam. So the king of Assyria repopulates the land with foreigners. The Jews who are there, they remarry with the foreigners, which is a big covenant no-no because it would lead them away from God, which it did. So the religion in the north, like the people of the north, they became syncretized. Okay, so partly Jewish, partly pagan. They had their own religious system, their own version of scripture. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which Judah later destroyed. They didn't appreciate. The Samaritans in the mind of the Jew, they're the picture of absolute betrayal, both to your covenant people and to your covenant God. Okay, they hated each other. The hostility was ethnic, it was religious, it was political. Okay, if you want to think about how the Jews thought about the Samaritans. You might think about how the Malfoy family and Harry Potter thought about mudbloods. Okay, muggles are the Gentiles, mudbloods are the Samaritans. This kind of like subhuman, low, not worthy to even be near us. In fact, they believe that they were unclean. Sometimes, sometimes a pious Jew, even in this journey, would go around Samaria so that they didn't have to interact with the Samaritans out of fear of being made unclean. Jesus instead chooses to go through Samaria. In fact, if you look at verse 4, it said he had to. He had to travel through Samaria. Now, geographically, yes, it's more convenient, but I think even more so, it's because it accorded with Jesus' mission. God gave up his only son for the world, right? Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. And I think what Jesus is modeling for us here is what we see commanded in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus has been a witness in Jerusalem with Nicodemus. Jesus has been a witness in Judea, in the countryside where he baptized. He is going to be a witness now in Samaria with the woman in her village, Next, he will be a witness to the outermost parts of the earth with a Gentile in verse 46. Okay, we are seeing this picture of the light coming into the world. Those receiving and being made into sons and daughters. It not being an issue of flesh or the will of man. And Jesus is going to make a daughter of God out of the least likely convert. So the text is setting us up for what ought to be a clash of maybe we would call identity politics. Instead, we see a tender shepherd come to rescue his sheep. Though perverse, perverse and foolish, they often stray. Verse 5, so he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Jesus is tired. He's worn out from his journey. He's eager to sit down and drink some water. Brothers and sisters, this reminds us that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He knows what it's like to be worn out from the demands of life. He just wants some rest, but not at the exclusion of his mission. Right? The word did not become flesh for a holiday, and he didn't go through Samaria merely because it was convenient. Jesus is modeling for us what it looks like to live on mission. His eyes are always open, even as they're heavy. And he is about to see someone and look at her in a way that no one else does. He's going to see someone who's broken and hurting, who's sin-laden, who's an image-bearer in need of restoration. Someone thirsty in need of his drink. He sees a future daughter of the king. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now, as we've been in the book of John, we've seen how uh, John loves this language of coming to Jesus. Early on, we see these invitations to come and to see. We see Nicodemus himself coming to Jesus. Now we see the woman of Samaria, she's coming to draw water. Another thing we've seen is how John, love, you, John loves using mundane language and loading it with meaning. So Nicodemus, in the cover of night, he goes to Jesus, the light of the world, not realizing at the time that he was dead in his darkness and in need of the sun's life and light. Here she goes to the well to get water. She doesn't yet realize that her soul is dead and dry and she's in need of the son's life and spirit. What she needs, he's going to happily offer her. Jesus says something to her that's shocking. He says, give me a drink. Now she's taken aback by it. We can see how she responds, verse nine. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She highlights two of the problems here that's making this unusual. First, she's a woman and he's a man. Okay, in culture, unmarried men and women did not have extended conversations, certainly not in private. It would have been taboo. More than that, in their culture, not in scripture, in culture, women were regarded as second-class citizens. There is this cultural gender gap between her and him. Second, he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. There is this ethnic and religious gap. It's not just that the Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They viewed them as unclean, as permanently barred, disqualified from the presence of God. They think that if they touch them, they themselves will become unclean. Now, John puts this note in here for us. The Jews do not associate with Samaritans. More literally, it reads like Jews don't share utensils or vessels with Samaritans. Okay, like we don't associate with each other. We don't break bread together. You think if you drink from my cup, I'll make you unclean. But as she will find out, Jesus is not made unclean by touching us. In fact, he makes us pure. But she has two strikes against her in her culture. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan at that. But there is a third strike against her. 
You'll notice in verse 6 that she goes to draw water at noon when the sun is the highest and the hottest. This is the worst time of the day to be getting water. Right, to carry a heavy jug there, to pull the water out of a well that was more than 100 feet deep, to fill it up, to carry it back to your town. Women would travel together. They would go like in packs. It's kind of like what the bathrooms are now, the wells are then. Okay, hey, (laughs) can't make those jokes anymore. They would travel together, and they would do so in the mornings and the evenings when it was the coolest. But here we see her going at noon alone when it's the hottest, the most difficult. Why? Probably because of what Jesus points out in verse 18. She's been married five times. She's now living with a man who she's not married to. Because of the sheer number of times she's been married, because she now has a man who's not even her own husband, I think we're safe to assume she's a serial adulterer. She is a moral outcast even in her own town. It's really, it's hard for us to grasp just how shocking this interaction is because of how sexually perverted our culture is, how casual we are about sex and marriage and divorce. She would have been the lowest of the low even among her own people. They can't even stand to draw water with her. She can't stand to be with them because of the looks and the sneers that she gets. And so she goes alone. If there was one person in all of Samaria a Jew would have sought to avoid, it would have been her. The one person that Jesus asks for a drink from. Don't miss this. Jesus dignifies her with his request. For the first time in a long time, I suspect a man has treated her with compassion with respect, without the intent of using and abusing her body and soul. I'm tired. Can I have a drink? I'm willing to put my clean lips where your dirty lips have been. We see the word became flesh and he has dwelt among us. You see, good evangelists don't just preach from a distance. They get in close. Jesus' request, it's so unexpected, she's suspicious of him, I think. She says, why would you, a Jew, ask for a cup from me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus is going to turn the tables. Look at the text, verse 10. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying it to you, And who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Jesus is a master evangelist, okay? He understands the human condition, that this woman's soul is restless because of her sin. He understands the content of the gospel that we preach. If you just understand who it is that is speaking to you and the gift that he offers, Christ and his gift. And notice with what ease Jesus turns from something natural that she understands to something supernatural. Okay, I asked you for water. You should be asking me for living water. Okay, this isn't like a Jesus juke. She understands what it means to be thirsty. They live in an incredibly arid place. I mean, it's hard for us to conceive of. They don't have tap water. They don't have bottled water. They don't have Tapa Chico, no LaCroix. She knows what it's like to need water and to feel her need for it. 
We only get glimpses of this. Maybe the way we feel after a workout. Maybe if you've gone overseas somewhere where you're discouraged from drinking the water, it's not as accessible to you. Jesus is using this metaphor because she understands thirst. She knows there's no life apart from water. She knows what it's like to be quenched, to at least temporarily feel satisfaction. Water, her whole life has kept her alive and she knows it. What Jesus is wanting her to see and to us to see is that while she's drinking physical water, she's not drinking spiritual water. She's been turning to things that she thinks would keep her alive, but they've been killing her. Like Nicodemus, she is spiritually dead. It's because she's chosen to drink from other wells. Jesus, I don't doubt, is drawing from Jeremiah chapter 2. There the Lord says, My people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. She, like all of us, have rejected God. This is the first evil. We have turned away from the source of life itself. And in place of him, we've set up something that's a counterfeit, that's cheap. It's like a cistern that can't even hold water. It's muddy. It's stagnant. It does not give life. Jesus knows that we're thirsty because we've spent our lives drinking that which cannot give life. We have been worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Jesus is pointing out to her, I think, her disordered worship, but his intention is to renew her worship. We come to our second point. Jesus' intention is to renew worship. Jesus says, if you knew who I was and the gift that I have, you would ask me for living waters. Now, what are living waters? Jesus gives a very similar offer in John chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus there in Jerusalem says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow deep within him. Then John does us a solid, verse 39. He said this about the Spirit. We see that God is offering us life by offering us himself. The Son who has been baptized in the Spirit baptizes us in the Spirit as well, cleansing us of our sins, making us new in him. The same offer that was given to Nicodemus, new and eternal life is being offered to her. It comes from God. The Spirit who is there hovering over the waters of creation comes to our hearts and makes us new. He creates life where there was death. The woman responds, verse 11, Sir, you don't even have a bucket. And the well is deep, so where are you going to give this living water? She doesn't understand. This is a reminder to us. We're not smart enough to save ourselves. This is really a characteristic response through the book of John so far. You think John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this body in three days, I will raise it up. People are saying, it's like 46 years to build this temple. John 3, you need to be born again. How can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Jesus, I have living water. Where's your bucket? <laughs> we see here that apart from the Spirit's work, we cannot understand the things of God. And yet God, the Spirit, works through the preaching of the Word, so Jesus persists. He explains more, verse 
13, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Like here's the issue. When you drink from this well, you get thirsty again. Day after day after day, you come back and you're thirsty. It doesn't matter how much you drink. You're always going to end up thirsty. Now, Jesus is not just talking about this well. He's talking about the cisterns that she has made in place of God. When you abandon God, the fount of living water himself, and you turn to anything else, you will always be left thirsty, unsatisfied. It doesn't matter how many times or how many trips you make to that well, you'll always be left wanting more. Sin, creation, it might satisfy for a moment, but we end up tired, confused, shameful, guilty, feeling more dead than alive because we are. You see, you keep going back to whatever altar or cistern you've created, thinking this time it will work. Okay, maybe not this time, but the next time I get a raise, I'll be satisfied. When I finally get that relationship, all will be well. When I'm in a different home, when I have better friends, when I finally have a kid or more kids, when my kids are better behaved, when someone looks at me the way they do on a screen, I'll finally be satisfied. You see, the issue here is that of worship, that we are seeking to give ourselves wholly to something that cannot give life. In fact, it will kill us. Every time we go to anything other but the fount of life itself, we don't experience satisfaction but hunger not life but death because of the way they were made we can't help but to look for life augustine put it well when he wrote and prayed you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you we can't but look for life we can't experience it anywhere but God. The problem is, according to our sinful nature, we do not want it in him. Jesus at that well found a woman who was restless. Married not once, but five times with another man now thinking maybe this one will satisfy. Maybe this time I'll find rest. I'll be whole and happy. And so again, she says, with my body, I thee worship. What she's looking for can be found in God alone. Every time she's left more empty, more broken, more hurting, more guilty. Jesus looks at her and says, anyone who drinks from this well will be left thirsty again. But I have what your soul was made for. All that you desire to be and to feel and to experience life and peace and joy, it comes from me. I have living water. Jesus says those who drink his living water will never get thirsty again. I think what Jesus means by this is that the Spirit truly makes us alive and we never have to worry about where our satisfaction is going to come from. And the well is never going to run dry. 
because the spring is God himself. She responds, still not understanding, verse 15, Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Now, she doesn't understand, so Jesus is going to press in on the heart of her, the issue, which is her disordered, disordered worship, which is sin. Jesus is going to press in to try to help her feel and understand the thirst that's there in her soul. Verse 16, he says, Go and call your husband and come back here. She responds, verse 17, I don't have a husband. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. We see that Jesus actually begins in their interaction with the offer of the gospel. Life in him. She doesn't understand and he now brings the law. Jesus understands that unless she realizes that she's dead, the offer of life will mean little to her. Unless she realizes that she's guilty, the offer of forgiveness of sins will mean little to her. She needs to see that her soul is thirsty, which I promise you she knows already. Each time you've looked for a man, but only God can offer you joy, peace, intimacy, safety, worth, dignity, Jesus is pressing in on the issue. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is a master evangelist and a counselor. This is what a good counselor does. Jesus is moving beyond the behavior to the issue of the heart. Like what exactly did you think you were gonna get that God wouldn't give you when you did X, when you looked at Y, when you treated your spouse this way, when you took this from your roommate? Jesus is pressing to the issue of the heart. He's doing so with a non-Christian. Like, what did you think those men were going to give you that God would not? He's trying to help her see her need, her desperation, her sin, and the remedy, which is God, the creator and redeemer. You have rejected God to build something cheap in its place, and it has left you destroyed. Her worship is disordered. He offers her to drink from him instead to restore her worship. And next we'll see that Jesus also transforms worship. Jesus transforms worship. She responds, verse 19, to his offer. She says, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this temple, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, Jesus calls her out on her sin. She's eager to talk about anything else. Do you see the Grizzlies game last night? <laughs> She moves it to what is the heart of the contention between Jew and Gentile, which is uh, the mode and the place of worship. Now, Jesus is okay with this because the whole conversation has been about worship. So he's okay to go here with her. She's saying, we, we worship on Mount Gerizim. You Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. He's all right with this. He responds, verse 21, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus does a couple remarkable things here. Notice that he guarantees that she's going to become a worshiper of God. You will worship. It's plural, no doubt speaking to her, to other Samaritans, to us as well. You will worship. And who does she worship? 
the Father. Jesus is going to offer up his special relationship with God to this dirty Samaritan woman. He will not be unknown to you as he is right now, verse 22. He's going to be your father. And then second, Jesus hints at the transformation of worship. He says worship will no longer be localized, not on a mountain or a temple. It's not going to be on this mountain or in Jerusalem. There's going to be a drastic change as the old system is fulfilled. It becomes obsolete in Christ. You see, we move from worshiping in a place to worshiping in a person. This is why we can gather as a church anywhere. We can do it here. We could do it in secret. We could do it in a field. Churches have done this for 2,000 years. It's because we don't worship in a place per se. We worship in a person. Now Jesus responds, verse 22, getting more at her current disordered worship. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. This cuts at any impulse of pluralism that would run in our veins. The Samaritans worship in ignorance. Jesus is saying you do not actually know the object of worship. Because salvation is from the Jews. He says that they actually know what they worship. You see, we can only worship God as he has revealed himself because, verse 24, he's spirit. He's invisible. He's transcendent. He's holy and pure. This means to create your own means of worship, which the Samaritans have done, is to change the object of worship itself. Calvin writes of this verse that is worth quoting at length. He says, this is a sentence worthy of being remembered and teaches us that we ought not to attempt anything in religion rashly or at random because unless there be knowledge of God, it is not God that we worship, but a phantom or an idol. All Good intentions, as they are called, are struck down by the sentence as by a thunderbolt. For we learn from it that men do nothing but err when they are guided by their own opinion without the word or command of God. We already know what man does left to their own devices. We reject God, the wellspring of life, and we create cisterns in our place. That is, we give ourselves to idolatry. In rejecting the whole of the Old Testament and God's covenant with Israel, the Samaritans have rejected Israel's God. Brothers and sisters, this is a warning to us. There is no true worship apart from what God has revealed in Scripture. Now the Jews, on the other hand, Jesus says, worship what they do know, right object of worship. And then Jesus adds, because salvation is from the Jews, meaning they possess God's uh, self-disclosure as he's revealed himself in the word, And, quite literally, salvation will come from the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. As we've seen thus far, he is the word of God, the true temple of God, the lamb of God. He's the son of God and the son of man. He's the bridegroom from heaven. He's the true prophet, priest, and king of Israel. All of Israel's saving history flows to him. Salvation is from the Jews. But importantly, Jesus doesn't say salvation is for the Jews. Not exclusively, at least, in this interaction with the Samaritan woman. Salvation is from the Jews, but it is for all. We see that worship is not restricted to Jerusalem or its people. Think about these first two interactions that John gives us in in his gospel. In John chapter 3, Jesus 
tells Nicodemus, he's an unlikely convert as well. He tells Nicodemus, a religious leader and teacher in Israel, that he needs to be born again by the Spirit. His ethnicity, his works will not help him before God. He is dead and he needs life. Here Jesus interacts with someone who could not seem like more the opposite. Not a man, but a woman. Not a Jew, but a Samaritan. Not a religious leader, but the laity. Not righteous, but unrighteous, and everybody knows it. If Nicodemus is at the top of the religious ladder, she is the bottom rung. If it would seem like anyone was too far from grace, it would be her, but she's not. Just as Jesus is not impressed with Nicodemus's spiritual resume, Jesus is not turned off by her sin. He draws near to both of them because they both need to be saved. They share in the same problem. Their hearts are stone and their souls are dry. In their sin, they have abandoned the living God and they need life. We see that salvation is from the Jews, but it is for all. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. That while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. It's what we celebrate every single Lord's Day, that in power, he rose from the dead. That he offers us the gift of life. Think again about his invitation to her. He said, if you only knew who I was, you would ask. He doesn't intend to make her feel bad or to make her work. All she's got to do is to ask. It's because the gospel is a gift. There on the cross, Jesus Christ dealt with our sins once and for all, and he offers us the gift of life by his grace. If you're visiting us and you're not a Christian, we would implore you this morning to simply ask Jesus for life. Turn from the broken cisterns that you have sought to find life from but have not and put your trust in Jesus. There are none that are too far from his grace. Jesus goes on, verse 23, he says, an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now Jesus is promising, verse 21, that an hour is coming when people, her included, will no longer worship on a mountain or a temple. That hour in the book of John is Jesus' death and resurrection. That is when the old covenant, the old system is fulfilled and is rendered obsolete. But Jesus is saying, even now, even now, people are worshiping in truth, in spirit and in truth. To worship in the spirit means to worship by means of the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's not a comment about spontaneity or emotions. Jesus is saying not only that God is the object of our worship, but he's the means by which we actually worship. The Spirit unites us to God. God gives us life. He indwells us. He makes our worship possible. There's no worship apart from the Holy Spirit, and there's no worship apart from truth. Okay, we worship in spirit and in truth. Apart from God's revelation, all worship is idolatry. God, in his kindness, 
has not left us to guess. He has given us his word. God reveals his truth in his word, the written word, and preeminently so in the spoken word, Jesus Christ, the revelation of God par excellence. Jesus, John 14, 6, describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father. That is, no one worships the Father apart from him. Okay, to worship the Father in spirit and truth is to worship the Father in the, in the Son and by the Spirit. And look at what Jesus says. This strikes me at the end of verse 23. He says the Father wants such people to worship him. The Father wants this woman to worship him. The Father wants us to worship him. Jesus, again, is not at the well by coincidence. He is there because the Father is seeking worshipers. The Son is on a mission to rescue future brothers and sisters from self and to restore them from God. Brothers and sisters, you are not at your work or in your family or in your neighborhood by accident. God desires true worshipers. How dignifying that God desires our worship, that he has turned his attention to us. God makes our worship possible. In his abundant mercy, he offers us life, which can only be found in him. We're to give ourselves completely to him in worship, the one that we are made for. Jesus, or the text goes on, verse 25, the woman responds, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he is here, he will explain everything to us. Like, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he's going to say a lot about a lot of this kind of stuff. You know, let's picture Jesus. <laughs> it's going to sound a lot like this. Jesus tells her, verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Right, not just sir, not a mere prophet, but the Christ. True man, but also true God. Jesus, for the first time in the book of John, explicitly identifies himself as the Christ. And for the first time in the book of John, he takes on the personal name of God, Yahweh, when he says, I am he. Jesus reveals his full identity to the person you would not expect, a dirty Samaritan woman, an outsider the lowest of the low, not religious leaders in the temple, but a broken, immoral, Samaritan woman. Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. God become man to die for the sin of the world. Why does Jesus reveal his identity so plainly to her? I suspect it's because only the thirsty will be compelled to come and drink. It is to the tired and the broken, to the sick and the hurting, to the unrighteous that Jesus says, come, I am he. What a sweet truth that we are never too lowly for God. Never too deep in sin, never too far from his son. From heaven he came and sought us. We see that the invitation to come and to worship is the invitation to find a rest. 
in restoring our worship of God, Jesus restores us, and he simply invites us to come as we are. Come and ask. What a gift. What a God. Let's pray.